If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together uh, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, our text this morning begins in verse 43 and extends to the end of the chapter. I apologize for not getting the outline into the bulletin like I normally do. I I thought I sent it to Gail, and then I saw the bulletin Friday night and realized that I hadn't. But if, if you do take notes, the points are pretty simple. The word confronts, the word converts, the word confirmed. And, and that's part because this passage is, is ultimately about the way the Word of God works. The Word does it all. Many of you may not be familiar with this particular scene here in John chapter 4. Perhaps you memorized the content of the Bible uh, chapter by chapter, uh, as I did and other ministers have had to do for their Bible content exams at Presbytery. And you know John chapter 4 as the chapter where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well. But this scene here at the end, I think, is vitally important for us because it, it, it renews our hope. It renews our hope, not just in Jesus, the Word of God, but in the Word that Jesus speaks, not just in times gone by, but to us today, now, in the preaching of the Word of God. But in order to, to have such hope renewed, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask Him for His help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as your people and desiring to hear the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. You would come and open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. That you would open our ears, Lord, that we might hear the voice of the Lord raising us from death to life. And you, above all, Lord, that you, by your spirit, would open our hearts, that we might embrace Jesus as he has offered to us in the gospel. Grant us this, Lord, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So over the past year or so, I have been reading a lot of Martin Luther and Lutheran theology. And one of the things that I've been reminded of in, in reading so much Luther was, was Luther's absolute insistence that the Word, and especially the preaching of the Word, was actually what accomplished the 16th century Reformation. Now, he says this in lots of different places in lots of different ways. One of my favorites is this famous and somewhat funny way that he puts it when he says, take me, for example. I imposed indulgences in all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip or Amsdorf, the word did so greatly weaken the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. The word did it all. But, but notice for Luther, it, it wasn't podcasts, although they, those have their place, or, or books, although those certainly have its place. No, he says, it, it's, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. In other words, it was the ministry of the Word, the preaching of God's Word. That's, that's what did it all. It was the voice of God living in the preaching of Holy Scripture. Why, why did Luther have such confidence that the preached Word had such power? Well, it's because the Word effects what it purposes and promises. The, the Word accomplishes what it purposes and promises. In other words, the preaching of the word is not a bare word. It's not a naked word. It's not a human word. It's God's word. The, the, the voice of God in, in the ministry of the word is in fact God's word. God accomplishes then his purposes and his promises when his word is given voice. Now the Bible teaches that from Genesis to Revelation, but one of the most familiar places where it does is Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, uh, God says through the prophet, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Did you hear it? When, when God speaks his word, stuff happens. God's purposes and promises are and will be accomplished when God's word goes forth because it's God's voice. It's God's word. Now, if we had any questions about how this works at all, this passage should clear up those questions for us because this scene is meant to show us something about Jesus's word and ultimately something about Jesus himself. We've already heard John in this gospel called Jesus the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is presented in this gospel as God's Word. But what do we see here? Well, we, we see Jesus speaking his Word, and his Word doing it all. His Word confronting and converting his word harming and healing. But if Jesus speaks his word and the word does it, things happen. It, it opens a further question for us. Who is Jesus? 
After all, God is the one who says in Isaiah 55, as the old King James has it, my word goes forth and it shall not return to me void. So if Jesus is the one who speaks his word and stuff happens, it accomplishes its purposes and its promises, who's Jesus? Of course, he's God himself. The God who changes hearts. The God who speaks his word. The God who will raise the dead in the last day. Because when God speaks, he accomplishes his purposes and his promises. The word does it all. Notice how this plays out in this passage as the word confronts those whom Jesus speaks to. The passage opens in verse 43 by telling us that Jesus spent two additional days in Sychar and that little village of the Samaritans teaching them the word of God. But then he resumes his journey. Because we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, he had left Judea. He was making his way to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria, both geographically, but also, if you will, pastorally. He had to speak to this woman by the well and through her reach an entire village with, with his own gospel message. But he resumes his journey. And, and as he resumes his journey, John has this strange parenthesis in verse 44. You see it? After two days, he departed for Galilee, verse 44, paren, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. What's that doing there? I mean, Jesus isn't in his hometown. His hometown's Nazareth, right? He's been in Sychar, a village of the Samaritans. So, so why does John say this here? Well, I, I think at least part of the reason is that, is that John is trying to tell us that Jesus has no settled place, no true base of ministry. He, he doesn't entrust himself uh, to Judea because he has no honor there. Uh, he doesn't entrust himself to Nazareth. The other gospel accounts say that, and John is presuming that you know that. As we're going to see in Galilee, there's no honor for Jesus there. There's no settled base for ministry. Ironically, the one place where Jesus has honor is the Samaritan village. But even there, Jesus does not remain. He's, he's engaged in a kind of itinerant ministry. He's, he doesn't entrust himself to others because as we saw in John chapter 2, verse 25, he knew what was in men. He knew the hearts of men. And in fact, in the prologue in John chapter 1, Jesus has said he had come to his own people and his own people did not receive him. I think John puts this right here in this parenthesis in verse 44 to help set up what's going to happen next because Jesus finally arrives in Galilee. He comes to the conclusion of his journey. And what do you find? Well, verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They're excited to have him. Uh, Jesus has arrived. Why are they so excited? Well, the rest of the verse tells you. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen... All that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. Well, what, what did Jesus do at the feast? Chapter 2, verse 23 tells you. Uh, there, Jesus is, is, it says that Jesus performed signs and wonders in Judea. The Galileans, at least some of them, had been there to see. The rest of them had heard about what Jesus had done, and now Jesus has returned and they are excited. They are welcoming him. Why? Because they want signs and wonders. They want Jesus to do what he did in Judea. 
In other words, Jesus knows what the Galileans want. That's why he's not receiving true honor for them. He knows that the Galileans want the signs. They don't want Jesus. Jesus knows that the Galileans want wonders, gifts. They don't want Jesus. And he confronts them with this when he comes to Cana and Galilee. Our ears perk up when you read in verse 46 that he's come to Cana and Galilee. We remember what happened in chapter 2. Jesus turning the water into wine, the first sign that displayed his glory. But in case we forgot, John reminds us. So he came again to Cana and Galilee where he made the water wine. That not only is a reminder of what Jesus had done in Cana of Galilee, it's also creating a sense of expectation. Jesus has returned to Cana and Galilee. Oh, last time Jesus was in Cana and Galilee, he performed a sign. Could it be that in returning to Cana and Galilee, there might be another sign? That there might be some expectation of signs and wonders, of gifts that he might give? Perhaps... Of course, we know from the text there's a, there's a soon opportunity because after Jesus arrives in Canaan and Galilee, this, this official shows up, an official in, in Herod's rule who has come from Capernaum to Canaan. That's a 17-mile journey, and he's made the journey presumably on foot. He, he's come because he, he wants Jesus to, to come back with him over those 17 miles back to Capernaum in order to heal his son because his son is ill. How does Jesus respond to the request? Do you see it? Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, on the surface, this seems incredibly harsh. On the surface, it seems as though Jesus is confronting this man but is, is he simply being harsh to this man like, like he was apparently harsh to the Syrophoenician woman in, in Mark chapter 7? Remember that, that we don't give the bread meant for the children to the dogs, right? You remember that? Is he doing a similar thing here where he's being purposefully harsh to test this man in his heart? Well, perhaps because, of course, the verse says, so Jesus said to him, he's speaking to the man, but this is one of those places, I, th- I've, I, I think, where I, I wish that our English Standard Version was actually the English Southern Version, because those U's there are actually plural. Uh, it actually says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. Now, the man is certainly included in the y'all, uh, but Jesus is speaking not just to the man. He's speaking to the Galileans of whom he's a part And what is he doing? He's confronting them. His word is confronting their deeper unbelief. His his word is coming as law to these people in order to expose their hearts, to expose their their cynicism, their kind of manipulation of Jesus. Because, of course, they, they don't really want Jesus. They just want the sign. They want the wonder. They they want they want the miracle. But they don't want Jesus. They want the gifts. They don't want the giver. And so Jesus is saying to them, I know what you're up to. I know what's in a man. I know what's in a woman. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. 
Of course, we're no different, are we? Our hearts are just as manipulative and cynical, just as prone to look for the gift and and forsake the giver, just as likely to, to hold on to the sign, the wonder, the good gift that's given. And if we don't receive that, we might forsake Jesus. He could be saying to us this morning, unless your wife or your husband, your son or your daughter, your parent is healed, you won't believe. Unless you're advancing in your career to a higher place, a higher position, greater prominence, you won't believe. Unless your children turn out right, whatever right is as you define it, marrying well, good jobs, financial, emotional security, you won't believe. What's your unless? How do you fill in the blank? Unless X happens, you won't believe. I suspect we all have unless. We, we want life to go the way we want it. And when, when suffering comes, when we're forced to walk in the way of the cross, then suddenly our, our trust in, in who this God is begins to waver. As we've already confessed this morning in the, in the call to worship, we, we confess with our mouths that we believe that God is strong and that God is loving. But when we suffer, or when our loved one suffers, or when our children struggle, then we begin to say, well, maybe not so much. Maybe God isn't strong. He may be good, but he's not strong. He's not able to do what we want him to do. Uh, Or vice versa, maybe God is strong, but he's not loving, and that's why he's bringing such malevolent things against me. But but what God is doing here, and what God is doing for you this morning, is his word is coming to confront you. What's your unless? Unless this happens, you won't believe, or you'll stop believing. You'll walk away on your profession, say, ah, I don't. You see, what Jesus is doing to the Galileans, he's doing to us this morning. His word confronts us. His word exposes our hearts. His words come to to harm, but not just to harm. Because when the wall comes, Jesus always desires to bring gospel. When he comes to harm, he always desires to heal. When Jesus comes to confront, he always desires to convert. And that's what's going on in this passage. This, this man is confronted with this word. Of course, it's meant more generally for the Galileans, but he's confronted by it. And he, he cries out in a kind of desperation, Sir, it's the Greek word kurios, Lord, come down before my child dies. It may be just as you say, Lord, that I'm, that I'm somehow wanting a gift and not the giver, but Lord, I see myself. And Lord, I know that you are the only one who can do something about my child. I am trusting in you. I need you. My child needs you. And it's in respond to this man's confession, I think, of his own exposure, that Jesus speaks a word that brings healing and conversion. Uh, of course, it's for the boy especially. Jesus responds to this official crying out to him in verse 49. How? Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, Your son will live. Actually, uh, in the original language, that's not a future tense verb. That's a present tense verb. The old King James Version gets it right when it says, your son liveth. Go, your son lives. Not will live in some future point. 
Not going to wait 10, 24 hours, three days, two weeks, and then he'll get better. No, go. Your son lives just because Jesus spoke the word. Your son lives and will not die because Jesus' word accomplishes its purposes and its promises. Your son lives because Jesus is God become human, word become flesh. Do you see what's going to happen here? What is happening? Jesus speaks the word and his word accomplishes all that he determines, all that he purposes. His word heals and converts and it does a miracle here. And yet, as great as this miracle is, we have to confess this. These kind of miracles don't happen very often, do they? These kinds of healings don't happen very often. What happens next is a miracle that Jesus does all the time. He's done it in each of your lives. Because, because what actually happens next is not simply the boy being healed, but the man being converted. How do we know that? How do we know that this man is, is actually, having been confronted with God's word, is actually converted? Well, look at what the rest of verse 50 says. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, how did that happen? Jesus says, go, your son lives. And the man believes it. He believes the word, stops pestering Jesus, turns, and he goes on his way back home to Capernaum. As we're going to see, it's, it's a two-day journey. He starts out, and, and it's not until the next day that he's actually meeting his servants on the way. But, but think about it. How did this man believe it? How, how, how did he believe the word? Did he exercise his own free will and make a decision about what Jesus said? Well, let's think about that for a minute. The man has just asked Jesus to come to Capernaum, 17 miles away, come and take a look at my boy and heal him. And Jesus simply says, yeah, I don't need to do that. Go, your son lives. And the man believes that word. And that, that's kind of incredible, isn't it? I mean, doesn't a doctor need to at least examine his patient? I mean, Jesus doesn't even ask what the illness is. He simply speaks and he assumes that it has happened from where he is sitting. Friend, why in the world would, would the father believe Jesus here? Let's imagine you've gone to the doctor. Well, Sarah and I are sitting at MD Anderson, and the doctor looks at her and says, you're healed. Or your doctor says, you're healed. You live. I don't know about you, but here's what I would say. Uh, can we have a scan? Can we get some blood work? I'm not so sure about you, boss. Can, can we get a second opinion on this? I mean, maybe we go back to our West doctors and see what they say about it, right? I mean, you'd, you'd want some kind of verification. Uh, here's a guy 17 miles away, doesn't even know what the boy's illness is, and he says, go, your son lives. Why in the world should the father believe him? If he's exercising his own free will to believe this, he's kind of foolish, isn't he? Why does he believe Jesus? Listen, the only way this father believes Jesus is that Jesus' word has converted the father. Jesus' word has, has called him in such a way that his eyes are opened, his will is renewed, his understanding is enlightened, and he's enabled to embrace Jesus as he's been offered to him in this gospel word. How is it that this father believes the word? The word did it all. The word did it all. Listen, the word continues to do it all continues to do this kind of converting work, even today. 
Some of you are here and you've had a a, a spouse or a parent or a child or or a friend uh, about whom you've been profoundly concerned spiritually. Perhaps it's a child who grew up in this church and been taught the way of God, but now is wayward and they're a young adult or an adult and, and they have nothing to do with church. Perhaps it's a parent, and you've been witnessing to that parent for years. You've given them book after book after book. If this book didn't work, this book might work. And you've been trying to witness to them and to try to persuade them to believe in Jesus. And and you're about ready to throw up your hands and give up hope. I mean, if if I can't convert my father, or I can't convert my mother, or if I can't, can't bring my wayward child in, then it must not work. But here's the thing. When Jesus speaks the word, stuff happens. When Jesus speaks the word, husband, live. Child, live. Spouse, live. Friend, live. There's nothing they can do, you can do to stop that from happening. That actually gives you great hope. Because as long as that loved one lives bodily, there's always an opportunity for Jesus to speak his word into their heart and say, let there be light and light to shine, which means then we have great hope, don't we? Great confidence, because we know who this God is that we've come to trust in Jesus Christ. We know that he's a God of great power and steadfast love. We know that we hold on to those two prongs, those two poles with all of our being, knowing that this God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who is a refuge and a strong tower, a God who is salvation. And because we know this God, we believe that when Jesus speaks the word, conversion happens. Conversion happens. But there's something else. There's more, because there are some here who are fearful. Maybe that that God won't, it's not about conversion per se, it might be about healing. That that Jesus will not heal your body. That Jesus will not sustain your life. You've prayed and you've prayed and you've got lots of other people praying and you're asking Jesus to heal. But for reasons best known to him, he's not done that for you yet. He may not. Listen, that's not the end of the story. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, what we're going to see in a couple of weeks has already come true for you. It's in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Not will pass, has passed. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do you hear it? Jesus has already spoken his word into your heart. That's why you have already passed from death to life. As you've already heard in the assurance of pardon, the old has passed away, the new has come. You're a new creation now, which means death has no hold on you. Death has no place for you. You already belong to Jesus. You already belong to life itself. You've already heard the word of Jesus, the Son of God, and you already live. But while you may not in this life be healed, there is coming a day when healing will happen. Because there is coming a day when Jesus will speak the word and you will be raised with a new body in a new world. And the dead will come to life again. They will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who are in the tombs will come out, as John 5 says. There is a resurrection day coming, which means all of the hurts, the physical hurts, the emotional hurts, the sorrows, the coming to an end. 
The word heals. God's word, Jesus' word, accomplishes its purposes and promises because the word takes us from death to life and raises us from the dead. But how do we know? I mean, how in the world can we believe this? It's just as unbelievable as Jesus saying to this father, your son lives, and the father believes and goes on his merry way. After all, we, not many resurrections in human history. Not a lot of verification. How, how can we believe? Here's how. The word that confronts and the word that converts is actually the word that's confirmed. All right, this man's making his way back to Capernaum. As he's making his way, what happens? Well, it's verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now the hour in which the word brought life to this child was 1 p.m. That's when the boy lived. That's when he was healed. That's when he was converted. And the father knew. He knew that Jesus' word had been confirmed for him. The word did it all. But listen, friend, you know that too. You've, you've had repeated signs in your life that have confirmed the word of God for you over and over again. You know people in your families or in your friend networks who've been radically converted, who looked as lost as a goose in a snowstorm, and then were radically converted, radically changed. In my family, it's my dad who at age 32, when he wasn't seeking God, found out God was seeking him, and he, God radically converted my father. If I have any doubt that God can convert any sinner, I just look at my dad, who was radically converted. You have testimonies like that too. You have testimonies of, of those who are healed. We have those in our own congregation who are at death's door, and we prayed as a congregation, and though the doctor said there was no hope, they were healed, and then the doctor had to say, you're a living miracle. You know these people. You've had these signs, the word confirmed. Others of you have lost jobs and you've come up, mortgage payment missed after missed after missed, and you prayed and you, others prayed with you and you cried out to the God who's both powerful and loving, please, please heal. And God spoke the word and instantly you had a job, not of your own doing, say, out of the blue. And yet God rescued you and delivered you. If you just take the time, you can go back through your life and you can see all the ways in which God confirmed his word. Why did he do that? So that when you and I come to our dying days and we begin to fear that maybe God won't heal, maybe God won't raise me from the dead, maybe all of this was just good religious talk and gave me some hope for today, but isn't really true truth. When we come to that day on our deathbeds, we can look back over all of these Ebenezer's through our lives, all of these ways in which God's word was confirmed, and we say, no, Lord, I believe it. I believe it. On the last day, you will raise me from the dead. I'm going from here to your presence, and then when you speak the word, I'm going from your presence back to this body made new and this world made new. I believe it because your word is confirmed. Because what does the word do? The word accomplishes its purposes and promises. Not because you're so great. Not because I'm so great. Not because we do anything at all. Who does it? The Word does it all. Friend, if you, 
If you've lost confidence this morning, if, you, if you're here struggling with hope, here is a passage to sink your roots deep in. Because Jesus himself is speaking through my voice to your heart. Rest in him. Trust in him. Put your hopes in him. Jesus, the word of God, who does it all. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that you've spoken your word. You've spoken your word into our hearts so that those who are dead are now alive, more alive than we've ever been as, as life from the age to come has invaded our present, eternal life. Lord, thank you for, for making us new creations in Christ so that the old has passed away and the new has come. Lord, we wish we had thousands of tongues to sing your praise this morning because of the way your word has been at work in our lives. Lord, please give us renewed confidence, we ask, in this living voice of God, the very word of God, who is Jesus himself as he speaks into our hearts and lives. I say renew our hope and trust in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.